We are picking up in Acts chapter 8, the second half of verse 1, and we'll read about the persecution that came to be after the martyrdom of Stephen. Let me read the first three verses, and then we'll get going. Acts 8, 1b. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This Saul was quite a case. He was so hostile against the Christian church and against the gospel. And not only did he approve of the stoning of Stephen, he wasn't even satisfied with that. He wanted to attack anybody who believed in Christ. Must have been some kind of a guy. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for this morning to get together, to open the scriptures, to study, to encourage one another, to learn, and to grow in the faith. Help us understand what you've said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now, 8.1b. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this was the beginning of something that Jesus predicted in Acts 1 and verse 8. Yesterday, I spent the day studying and working on a sermon for about a month from now, but uh, I was looking at Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8, and the Great Commission, and then the prediction here in Acts 1, 8. And I was looking at these verses in the Greek language and looking at the tenses, and I found something that I would like to discuss with you today. I think it's very interesting and almost always misunderstood by evangelicals over the years. But let me read Acts 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Now notice here in Acts 8 what's mentioned. Judea and Samaria. So I looked up Acts 1.8 into Greek, and I found there's no imperative in the verse. It's not Jesus saying, you shall be my witnesses in Judea. 
He says, you shall, future tense. This is what's going to happen. But how it happened was through God's providence, through just working, through persecution, through events that happened on the scene of history, and for people to do what they do. Philip had been chosen earlier to be a deacon, but he ends up being an evangelist. But it's said, and we'll look this up later, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. So when they chose deacons, including Philip, they chose men who were characterized by being full of the Spirit. Not saying they were an elite class, but to make a narrative thread here for us to pay attention to. So he says in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. He's predicting what will happen. Now, what they didn't do was immediately form a mission committee (laughs) and go about raising money for their new mission to Samaria. You know, give us enough money, send in your $25 donation. We got pictures of these poor Samaritans. (laughs) Who's going to come? And, and, uh, well, they had no such thing. And how we do things in the 20th century was not exactly how it happened. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to plan. I'm just explaining what happened here. And I will say this. As events unfold, even though we do nowadays have committees and planning and fundraising and so on, it's very typical, what ends up happening that's successful, quote-unquote, usually is another matter of God's providence. Things just happen. Or you end up at the right place. Or you end up talking to the right person. Or you just do something that seems... Like, there it is, why don't we do this? And, well, what do you know? God used it. Okay? Because God isn't giving us revelations about the future. He's working providentially to get us to the right place at the right time. That's what happened here. Now, the apostles, they're the leaders. They didn't want to go to Samaria. Now, when we see this, I'm going to be a little preview here. They stayed in Jerusalem. In fact, had it not been for the persecution, the church really liked Jerusalem. They preferred it. It was where they wanted to be. And the apostles just stayed there. And it was persecution that scattered. And the word for scatter is the same word used in Luke for sowing seed. The sower went out to sow. So there's a double meaning there. They're scattered or they're planted. God planted them there. But they ended up there because of what happened in history. I've had an interesting history lesson this last couple weeks. We, uh, our daughter Jessica and I have run into a treasure trove of material that we produced over about 10 years when I was in my 50s. We found videos, 
by God. It's just a miracle that we found this external hard drive that she had full of all these videos on the Ten Commandments, Faith at Risk, Luke. We found high-quality audios. And she's now working. We're going to put this up on YouTube. See, when we produce the stuff to start with, the technology wasn't like that. You had to actually make a physical DVD and sell it to somebody. Well, now... You, this stuff can spread all around the world by just clicking. <laughs> and somebody says, oh, I like that. And they click and they send it to their buddies. And it, it was Providence. I said, Jessica, see if you can find that hard drive that you put all those videos on. She did that for years. And she had to call over and talk to Carl. And they had just moved. And he said, when she called, he said, oh, the movers found this. And I thought it might be important, so I hang on to it. They wouldn't even have known they had it, had she called earlier. Had she called later, they probably would have just get, get rid of it. So we got the, the hard drive, one terabyte. They'll say, so I'm doing this. I'm trying to give you a lesson. I'm rather excited right now. Um, and healthy. Um, it's part of God's providence. We could never have figured that all out. No matter how ingenious anybody is, they can't figure it all out. How God works in providence includes all things, right? All things work together according to his purpose. And why did we do all that work with that video? Why did we save all of it? And why did we have high-quality audio, audio and why all of that, and then it all got saved. And now I'm digging through and listening to all these old sermons from when I was young. But the fact is, now we can use it to reach all around the world. Couldn't have done that 10 years ago. It was too hard. We tried, but it was too hard. You had to get people to actually buy a DVD because it cost money to make them. Then you had to ship them somewhere. Dear Saints, Here's the lesson. God is going to use you to spread the gospel in ways you don't even know. And the good news is this. It doesn't depend on you or me or I being a sage or a prophet or somebody who gets revelations from God beyond scripture it just depends on our faithfulness wherever we end up dear evangelist god bless you you've gone here you've gone there i've heard i hear the reports i see the prayer reports how do you end up where you are well some places they're willing to talk to you is that right steve you can go somewhere else nobody wants to talk to you okay we'll go over here that's just providence But God bless you for being faithful when you're there. That's all we can do. Be faithful where where you are. Be faithful where you end up. Be faithful in your family. Be faithful in your neighborhood. When I was a pastor on 24th and Nicollet, we had a blues band. It was a good blues band. That was fun. And we went right out in the front yard, and we'd have 400 people come. And we'd feed them, and evangelists would spread out and talk to them all about the gospel and we preach the gospel and then we put on the blues 
which I like, by the way. And uh, wow, it was fantastic. So we reached all those people. Well, then we moved to St. Louis Park. We thought, well, let's do the blues band. We set up in St. Louis Park. People go, what? (laughs) Couldn't even get three people to come by. The the people of St. Louis Park got their own business, and that's okay. They have other ways they make their decision about what they're going to do. The people in 24th and Nicollet are wandering around on the streets with nothing to do. Wow. Free concert. Food. So, dear ones, we don't have to be geniuses. We just have to be willing to do what God called us to do, where we are, when we are, by his grace. He gets us there. When I was looking up Matthew 28, go is not a command in the Greek. It's not even really in the Greek. The only imperative in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission is make disciples. The going part of it is just what happens. Where you end up on the scene of history, make disciples. There's the command. Teaching, doing. So we're always commanded to make disciples. Where we do it is part of providence. We just make our decisions. There's not a right or wrong decision about where you live, where you gather to meet as Christians, where you end up. It's all part of providence, and it's part of Christian liberty. Make your decision. But where you are, wherever it is and how you get there, make disciples. Now, the apostles, this is except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem, which is where they wanted to be. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because I was just, I'm getting ready to teach this other stuff when we get to it. When God saves Samaritans, something extraordinary happens. Normally the Holy Spirit falls on them like on Pentecost. God delayed that until the apostles came in uh, Acts 8. Why? Because the the apostles still had to be convinced that God would save Samaritans. Remember? Look back, Matthew 28, Acts 1-8. What happens? They're scattered because of persecution. God uses Philip. God saves Samaritans. The apostles come, okay, we're convinced God will save Samaritans. Peter and the God-fearing Gentiles. Was Peter gathering with his mission committee? We're going to go to the God-fearing Gentiles. Oh, no. Peter was staying. He didn't want anything to do with these Gentiles. They're unclean. He was just going to eat. Remember? The sheet comes down, the vision, the food. He ends up preaching to God-fearing Gentiles. And what convinced them was God saved them. That he had to convince the apostles in Acts 10 and 11 that that was the right thing to do. And though this doesn't have a command, Acts 1.8, This is exactly what God did. This is the program for the book of Acts. So as I read this and did all this study, I was comforted. I'm comforted because what God is going to do doesn't depend on my genius. 
You should all be saying, good, amen. <laughs> or anybody else's. It depends on, as God does what he does and we see it, we're faithful. We do make disciples. We teach. We evangelize. We care for the flock. We do what God's called all of us to do. So, it says in Acts eleven nineteen. I have that on the slide here, the reference. So then, those who were scattered, read, sown, planted, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. Now, this is part of the process. How did it end up so it wasn't Jews alone? Peter's vision, God-fearing Gentiles, and then eventually, through Paul, after his conversion, they actually start going directly to Gentiles. In Acts 1.8, which is the outline for Acts, all happens. But the story is the story of God's providence. Now, do we have to make decisions? Yes. Do we try to make the best ones we can? Yes. Do we take into account what we know, what we can't know, what makes sense, what works? Yes. But we can be comforted that God's going to use it. Unless we're in rebellion and saying to God, no, I won't make disciples. Because that's the command. Okay? I won't preach the gospel. That would be rebellion. But how and where and how it works out, God is at work. Now, the apostles had certain favorable status with the people in Jerusalem, although not the Sanhedrin. But it says in Acts 4.21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go. This would be the Jewish leaders and, and the apostles. They let the apostles go, finding no basis in which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what happened. So the people in Jerusalem, not the Sanhedrin, still loved the apostles. They still listened to them. So that's where they were, and that's where they stayed until God continued to work, and they ended up going. You get it? All right. In Acts 8, 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This is a real one. This is heartfelt because it says it was devout men. Now, in Jewish practice, if you've ever read the writings of Kenneth Bailey, it's very delightful, Bailey is, about uh, Jesus through Mideastern eyes and what it's like and how they operated. In their practice, the more important somebody was when they died, the greater the lamentation. Now, this wasn't always spontaneous. There were people who made a living being hired 
to whale. Okay? So, you can read about this in Bailey. So, if somebody had a lot of money and died, it would be a shame and embarrassment if they just had the funeral. People had a couple, okay, he's gone. That was it. That'd be terrible. So, you hire lots of, lots of people to wail. I mean, loud. Screaming and wailing and beating themselves and and they would just do that. That's that was their job. That was their profession. And they were they hired themselves out. Have you heard about that, Dina? Yeah. And but see, in this case, these aren't hired people. So they're devout. They really cared. The lamentation was from the heart. And he was held in high regard, in the horrible and unrighteous way that he died, motivated them and brought them a lot of grief. And so this lamentation was a sign of love, of honor, and of respect. Yes. Stephen had just gotten through kind of lambasting the Jews for not knowing their past history and stuff like that. So I'm wondering where this group of lamentators, I wonder what their mindset was. They were Christians. Yeah. It says they're devout men. Okay, because I'm looking. It says they were devout men, but, and, and again, this would be... Uh, and there may have been others who were sympathetic to Stephen. Right. It wasn't necessarily that everybody loved the Sanhedrin. Okay. And and I'm just reading from MacArthur's study Bible. As you were reading it, I was reading this, and he's saying that it was probably pious Jews. Well, they would be, but okay. some of them may have believed and some of sure. them maybe had not yet been converted. Okay. Let me read David Peterson's commentary on this. This would mean, says Peterson that the opponents of Stephen do not represent the views of all the Jews in Jerusalem. Some sympathy for Stephen and his cause is implied. Indeed, if the Mishnah rule, which forbade lamentation for one who had been executed, was recognized at this time, their action was quite remarkable. In other words, there was a law against this. You can't lament for a criminal who was executed. So by doing so, whether Christian or just devout Jews, they were expressing a political opinion that his execution was unrighteous because they were forbade to do this. You can't do it. Well, remember that after the day of Pentecost, you know, 3,000 were added to the church. And and daily, those who should be saved, where did those people come from? They were Jews. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no shortage of devout men who, who believed in Very Jesus. good point. Very good point. There were plenty of devout Jews who were saved at Pentecost. And there may have been some who just loved Stephen and thought, this isn't right. This is not right. This, this guy was executed. He did nothing to deserve it which is true. Now, here's another commentary, Pole Hill. Stephen says Pole Hill was given a proper burial by godly men, quote-unquote, probably some of his fellow Jewish Christians. It was an act of real courage on their part. 
Jewish law forbade funeral observances for a condemned criminal. And even if Stephen had been the victim of mob violence, those, those who stoned him surely viewed him as a blasphemer and lawbreaker. One is reminded of the similar courage shown by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in the burial of Jesus. There's a, that's a good analogy, providing a tomb. He was not out there as a believer, but wanted to do something. Joseph of Arimathea. So that's, that's very interesting. So this lamentation was the real thing, and it showed that Stephen was held in high regard. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, verse 3, dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. This is remarkable. His hatred for the gospel in Christians was so great that he was ravaging. The word for ravaging is used in the Septuagint, the Septuagint, Psalm 79, 13 in the Septuagint, or Psalm 80, 13, for wild beasts tearing raw flesh. This is how violent and angry and filled with hatred Saul was. He wanted the Christians dead, at least imprisoned. Okay, again, I'm quoting this Pole Hill. This, the escalation of his opposition to the Christians is interesting. First, says Pole Hill, he was presented as a bystander at Stephen's martyrdom, 758. Then we are informed that he gave full mental assent the stoning of Stephen, 8-1-A. Then his consent led to full involvement. He became the church's worst enemy, verse 3. Indeed, he is portrayed as persecution personified. This was on some, something else. This guy was as motivated by anger, hatred, and ready to take action as anybody could be. And notice he says here, Luke says, take off men and women. He didn't even show respect for women, which you would expect from the Jews. You're going to drag women off and throw them in jail? That just shows how far he's willing to go. Let's listen to what Paul said about his own self. Later, when he was before kings, Acts 26, 10, and 11. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So it wasn't just Stephen put to death. Others were. And Saul was voting, kill them, kill them. You think of the mob in Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 11, Acts 26. 
And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Saul hated the church so badly, he was enraged, he was violent, he even attacked women. So this is giving us a picture of how awful it was for a Christian to encounter Saul of Tarsus. This was bad. Norm. Well, when you're talking about that, I was thinking of 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, where Paul recounts how he was, and he talks about how amazed he is and how thankful that Jesus Christ, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, put me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And then yeah. he goes on and explains more, but... but uh, Stay on the mic. Yeah. But it goes on and explains more. Okay. And, and then he goes on, he says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which was found in Christ Jesus in a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this yeah. reason I found mercy in order that in me as foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Amen. So there's no hopeless case. It goes to show we don't know who God's going to convert. You wouldn't have expected it was going to be this guy. Verse 4, now those who were scattered, sown, went about preaching the word. See, that's how it works. God puts us on the scene of history according to his providence. And according to our part, we just make decisions within our Christian liberty. Our decision may be, these people are going to kill us. I'm going to get out of here. It's all right. When they got out of there, they preached the word somewhere else. They were forced out. We end up where we end up. And if you look back, you can see all these things that happen. I'll tell you a big mistake that Christians can fall into. And that is becoming bitter. See, what we like to do is keep track of all the injustices that happened to us. Okay? This wasn't right. This wasn't fair. These people were evil. Well, that was true for how the Sanhedrin treated Stephen and how Saul treated the Christians. So you can become bitter. Well, God, why do you let this happen? Or why are these people so evil? Or why are they doing this? Well, we can think about that for a bit. But you know what? Meditating on that's not going to fill your heart with the joy of the Lord. 
You know, we don't want to become bitter. What we need to think about is, all right, now I ended up somewhere else. What should I do? Preaching the word. All of this happened. What should I do? I think I'll preach the word. Sometimes you don't think that's ever going to be possible or ever going to happen. But you never know what God's going to do. I didn't decide after an awful lot of things happened, some of which was my fault, some of it wasn't. But I remember some of you here were there. I didn't think I'd ever, ever preach the word again the rest of my life. I was sick and I almost died and all these things. But we ended up gathered at a hotel thanks to Brian Beers. Now, Brian, you didn't get a revelation from God. You just wanted to have church, right? Yeah. He tried to have church in his living room and too many wanted to come. So then we were going to have it in our living room and 60 wanted to come. And so we called Brian and said, well, we can't have 60 in our living room. And we ended up in a hotel and then Eric got sick after one week, and they didn't have a preacher. And I said, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll give it a try. And I ended up preaching. Well, I didn't have some revelation. Go preach in a hotel to people that won't fit in a living room. <laughs> preaching the word. You do it. Here we are. This is it. We're in a senior citizen's place right now. Let's preach the word. I don't know what else to do. I don't have anything else I want to do. So this is an inclusio. Do you know what it is? Remember what an inclusio is? Brackets. It brackets something. For emphasis, here's how you find a section. So later in 825, it says this. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem who were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the bracket is preaching the word. Now the word preaching is one that's used very often in Luke-Acts. Euangelizo. That sounds cool, doesn't it? I like that word. Euangelizo, evangelizing or gospeling. Euangelion is the gospel. So in kind of awkward English, we could say they were gospeling. They were preaching not just any word, but the gospel. They were gospeling. And that happens later. Same things mentioned in Acts 8.25. So there's your brackets. So, preaching the word, I should, I should have that preaching the word there, 42 times in Luke Acts. The gospel spreads through ordinary Christians used by God in extraordinary ways. I want to say that again. Ordinary Christians used by God in extraordinary ways. Turned on a channel the other day, 
they said it was a camp meeting channel, camp meeting. I thought, well, let's see what that is. It had the goofiest preacher. He had an object lesson out there. It was a bad, and he was telling some story of the Old Testament. But the point of the whole story was, give me your money. How come that's always the point? Give me your money. He wasn't preaching Christ. He was telling people, oh, you can't, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, and you have a bad balance sheet, and you got debt, and you got to sow your seed. And then all these good things are going to happen. Listen, that is not euangelizo, telling people the answer to their problems is to give money to the preacher. That's not it. Euangelizo means to evangelize, preach Christ. From the noun form of the word for scattered, we get the term diaspora, the Jews scattered amongst the Gentiles. So now it's the Christians scattered amongst the pagans. What is God going to do with us? I don't know, but somehow we'll end up amongst the pagans. Do you believe that? Okay, so once we end up amongst the pagans, what are we supposed to do? Do your euangelizo. <laughs> Just share Christ. And you might say, well, how? Maybe I'm not eloquent. You don't have to be. Tell people who Christ is. Remember that saying that I'm fond of? There are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. It's extraordinary to be put in a place where you can share Christ. It's extraordinary. God uses ordinary Christians in extraordinary ways. That's just what he does. And it's you and it's me. And it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter who our audience is. Just do what we can with what's set before us. Now, Philip, remember, he was one of the deacons. See, preaching Christ is not something that's reserved for certain professionals, for just certain preachers. It's for all of us, whatever our other roles may be. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. Preaching Christ or preached Christ, synonymously parallel to evangelized the word. Mike was talking about the truth. And the word the truth, that phrase is synonymously parallel with the gospel. Preaching Christ is synonymously parallel with evangelized the word. It's all about the same thing. Now, there's a lot of topics that we cover. We preach verse by verse through the Bible. But I think it is always appropriate that we would preach Christ. Oh, yes. I was telling you about all these old files I found. I was digging around. I saw one that was half of a gigabyte. 
But half a gigabyte, that must be something. Let me see what that is. Clicked it. It was a video. One of the first videos I think we ever shot. And I was preaching Christ and talking about why it's important to preach the gospel to the church. And the church was really small then. It was in 2003. Brian, uh, Norm, you guys were there. But uh, some, of, some of the rest of you probably were. Tiny little group, and I was just, we need to preach Christ, preach Christ to the church, preach Christ to the lost, preach Christ, and went through all these verses. And so we had this video, 2003. Guess what? My hair was darker, I was younger, <laughs> looked better, but it doesn't matter. An old man can still preach Christ. And all of us can. So I was encouraging me to find, to me to find that. I don't feel badly that 13 years later we're still preaching Christ. You don't progress from Christ to something else. Mike. Well, I just want to say for me, um, sometimes, you know, all the stuff that we do, like I say, we do teach and preach other topics and stuff, but when we come down to evangelizing, gospeling, if we can just remember, for me, it keeps it so much more simple to just remember it's all about Christ. You, you know, when yeah. you're talking to Mormons or Jehovah's or whatever, if you just get back to Christ, you know, and the, the, what, he has, what God has revealed to us in his word, we're, we're going to be able to uh, uh, um, confront all these false teachings. And it just makes it so much more simple if you just kind of bring it back to Christ. You know, it, it, and we, do, we don't want just a... a, 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 a not a full knowledge of his word. We need it all, but just remembering that helps me so much. You know. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. You run into Mormons. They think Christ was a man who became God. We just preached the preexistent Christ who created the world out of nothing. Refused Mormonism. Good point. So evangelize, preach Christ. Now the Samaritans, just to give you a little context here, Philip preached Christ to the Sumerians. Now, do you remember previously um, when somebody preached to Samaritans? Somebody said Jesus. That's right. John 4, I believe it is. Where was it? There was a woman at the well. So Jesus went to Samaritans. She went and told all her Samaritan friends that this guy told her everything she'd ever done. And what he said to her wasn't very flattering about what she'd done. But she got excited. And he offered her water that if you drink, you'd never thirst again. So he preached himself to Samaritans. So after Jesus ascends into heaven, now one of the deacons of the early church is preaching Christ to the Samaritans. And uh, let me quote from, again, from Paul Hill, a little bit of material about who the Samaritans are or were, how they came to be. This issue came up when Jesus interacted. Remember, do you worship in Jerusalem at this mount or Mount Gerizim? Which one is right? Jesus said it. Hours coming and now is when the, those who worship God will worship him 
in spirit and in truth. So this is starting to happen through Philip. Paul Hill says this about the Samaritans. They were descended from the northern tribes of Israel, the old kingdom of Israel that had fallen to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Those who were not taken captive to Assyria but remained in the land intermarried extensively with the native Canaanite population and the peoples whom the Assyrians resettled in the conquered territory. These Samaritan descendants of the old northern tribes considered themselves still to be the people of God. They had their own form of the Pentateuch for their Holy Scriptures. It was different, by the way, than the Jews. Circumcised their sons and built a temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the one in Jerusalem. That came up in John 4.20. The Hasmonean king, John Hyrcanus, destroyed their temple and made them subservient to the Jews. That was during the intertestamental time. So the dispute was deep and profound between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were descendants from those who had intermarried with pagans. They rejected the true scriptures of Moses for their own version. And they created their own place of worship. But they considered themselves believers in the same God. But there were issues. But what does Jesus do? He says, not where you're going to worship, but how? In spirit and in truth. The gospel going to the Samaritans after having gone to the Jews is going to make Christian brothers and sisters between Jewish and Samaritan people. And they're not going to care anymore about Gerizim versus Jerusalem. They are indeed going to worship in spirit and in truth. And thinking of Jesus' words in John 4, it's interesting, a little later, the apostles witnessed the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans. I wondered if they thought back to what Jesus had predicted. Remember the parable in Luke 10? The Samaritan was the righteous one who cared for the person who needed help. We call that the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans expected their own version of Messiah, a figure they called Tahib. Tahib was going to come and restore true worship, they thought, on Gerizim. No, the Messiah comes and they're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. So that's how the gospel is coming to the Samaritans. Now I have here, remember the inclusio, actually, I ended it in verse 35, but you could go to verse 40. Here's a slide that has seven parallel statements. Verse 4 of Acts 8, evangelize the word. Verse 5, preach Christ. Verse 12, evangelize concerning the kingdom. Verse 25, 
testified and spoke the word. Verse 25, being evangelized. Verse 35, evangelized, you galizo to him, Jesus. And verse 40, evangelizing. So this is all through here. And it behooves us not to divide things up when they are actually parallel. There are people, and I've run into them, who claim, for example, in verse 12, evangelizing concerning the kingdom, that there's different gospels, and that the gospel of the kingdom is some different gospel than the gospel of salvation. There's somebody that says the gospels aren't for the church, they're only for the Jews. And then says, first, second, third John are not for the church. First and second Peter are not for the church. James is not for the church. Hebrews is not for the church. So we have all this dividing. Divide, 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 divide. And make it more complicated than it really is. And confuse the church. Now, here's something that will help us. Mike was talking about it when he talked about the truth and the Christ and the gospel. Remember, these are parallel. One of the ways we learn is looking at parallel statements that are used synonymously. You do that in any language. You can do it in English. Yeah, maybe you never saw baseball before. And you came from some other country that didn't have baseball. You turn on the broadcast, and somebody says, he had a long blast way in the seats. And then later, they say, oh, he hit a home run. Well, what's the difference between a long blast way into the seats and a home run? (laughs) Nothing. Both of them are you go all the way around, first, second, third, home, and you get a run or more if the guys are on base. So if you never heard it before, you might be trying to create a lexicon. Oh, yeah, what about this one? This must be different than this. No. See, languages use parallel or uh, synonymous statements, and that's what helps us learn languages. Pretty soon it just becomes second nature. See, the Bible does that. So rather than saying there's more, there's four or five different Gospels, why don't we just see this for what it is? It's the Gospel of Christ. And some say, oh, no, the Gospel of the Kingdom is different. No, because Christ is the King. And when the Kingdom is established, Christ will be King. The Gospel of Christ also is about Christ the King and his rulership. Ruling now over the lives of those who believe in him with future promise to come and literally establish a kingdom. But it's the same gospel. Does that make sense? Good. That'll keep you out of a lot of trouble if you know that. Verse 6, Acts 8, 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to 
to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. So they were willing to listen to Philip as he went through the area of the Samaritans. And with one accord is something that we've seen before. It was used in Acts 2.46. Now, in Luke-Acts, just so you, you get this, Luke-Acts, Luke is a brilliant writer, and he uses repeated phrases and terms and events purposely so that we learn something. So in Acts 2, the original disciples were in one accord, right? And with one accord, they came together and learned and served and worshipped under the means of grace. And by using the same term in Acts 7.57, I have that here, you create a huge contrast. The church is in one accord about Christ. The Sanhedrin is in one accord about being an angry mob to kill Stephen. Their one accord was bad. But then now the same term comes up in Acts 8, and the Samaritans are in one accord, like the church back in Acts 2. So it tells you that you're either with the enemies of Christ or you're with Christ. And it doesn't depend on your ethnicity. The Samaritans were in one accord for good. The Sanhedrin was in one accord for evil. And the church was in one accord under the means of grace. So there's a lesson learned. It said in Acts 7.57, they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed on him, Stephen, with one impulse. Jesus in Luke 8, 4 through 21, spoke about the importance of authentic hearing. By the way, I'm t- because Eric is uh, busy in the summer, I'm putting Luke up on our CIC radio. And I have now found those in high definition audio. So the quality is going to go up. But anyhow, it talks about authentic hearing. Let these words sink into your ears. See, listen to Jesus. Listen to the gospel. Listen to the word of God. That's what the Samaritans do. They paid attention. They did let those words sink into their hearts. The Samaritans listened like that. The Sanhedrin did not. So, what's a good lesson here if we run out of time? We are scattered by God's providence on a scene of history. Wherever we are, what we know we're to do is to share the word of God as we're given opportunity. And what we know we need to do as disciples are made is that we need to listen. We need to listen and pay attention and let the word of God sink into our hearts. 
and God will change us. That's how God works. And God will send us providentially to all different kind of people. How do we know who's going to listen? We don't. So we just go where we go and share the gospel and let God determine who's going to listen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Philip and his willingness to go to the Samaritans. Help us to love your word and listen and share it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.